Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. How do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month they deliver them to your doorstep. Happy New Year, Katie! Happy New Year! I've had a very lovely break. Me too. It's been very relaxing. Today, I'm going to tell you about an amazing woman. She was the very first woman to attempt a transatlantic flight. Oh. She was the only woman to hold simultaneous world records for speed, altitude, and distance. Cool. She was the first woman to pilot a commercial passenger airline. Wow. She beat Charles Lindbergh's world record time for a cross-country flight. Really? Flying across the country in 13 hours and 21 minutes. Wow. So why isn't she as famous as Amelia Earhart? Why haven't I heard of this woman? That's exactly what I said. And that's what we're here to find out today. Cool. Her name is Ruth Rowland Nichols, and her story is sad and inspiring and fascinating and depressing. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like perfect what's-her-name Classic what's-her-name. <laughs> I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's-Her-Name. Fascinating women you've never heard of. So, of course, one of the problems that we've talked about a lot is in women's history, you have one slot for any given category. Right. Yeah. We get female aviator. Mm -hmm. And that is taken by Amelia Earhart. Right. We might get Bessie Coleman if we want white female aviator, black female aviator. Yeah. But those are the only two we ever talk about. And that's ridiculous. So to learn more about Ruth Rallin Nichols, I talked to Keith O'Brien. I'm Keith O'Brien, and uh, I'm a longtime journalist and the author of Fly Girls. New York Times number one bestseller last ah, year. Cool. It's a really incredible book to meet all these women, all these incredible female aviators that mm. I've never heard of. But he's also just a brilliant writer. You get a fully fleshed out story and you feel like you really know these people and you understand all the context for what's going on in a way that is really unusual for sort of a pop history. Cool. It's stunning to go back and see how the press, almost exclusively a male press, wrote about these women. It made for great copy great headlines when when women made daring flights or attempted to race in the national air races at the time. But these reporters 
would go out of their way to sneak little belittling comments into their stories when a man made a daring flight or when a man won an air race, both of which were extremely dangerous, almost to the point of being reckless. He was an aviator, you know, with a capital A, almost like a gladiator in the sky. When a woman would make these daring kind of flights, press would call them ladybirds, mistresses of the sky. Um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's ridiculous. The sweethearts of the air. It's so sweet. Yeah, so cute and sweet of them. When they're breaking men's records and flying yeah. world record speeds. <laughs> cute and little ladies getting in an airplane. <laughs> yeah. And Amelia herself would later say, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, would it kill them just to call us pilots? In order to understand the story of Ruth Nichols, we first have to understand the story of Amelia Earhart. We tend to have forgotten everything about how she lived. Amelia Earhart didn't begin as a, as a famous aviator who flew solo across the ocean. She began as a social worker in Boston in the spring of 1928, who had a pilot's license, but now living in Boston as a social worker wasn't doing much flying at all. And it is here in Boston where she gets possibly one of the most lucky breaks anybody could have gotten at this time. She's plucked from obscurity to ride as a passenger on a plane flown by men across the ocean. Amelia herself will do no flying. Her job is to sit behind the two men flying the plane, and take notes for a book that she will write for George Putnam of Putnam Publishing, if and when this plane successfully makes it across the ocean. So Amelia Earhart's <laughs> rise to fame is she called herself a sack of potatoes. She was a passenger on a flight. Ha! I just bead a woman. <laughs> She's freezing, sitting there in the back of the plane doing nothing. Crazy. But when they landed, she's famous. When it lands off the coast of Wales in June of 1928, Amelia Earhart has become the first woman to fly across the ocean. What's frustrating about this entire story is that in the spring of 1928, Ruth Nichols was already an established East Coast pilot. What's especially frustrating to Ruth Nichols is that Ruth Nichols lives just two miles from George Putnam in Rye, New York. He very likely knew her family he could have certainly gotten her on the phone. But the plane that had been acquired to make this flight, this seaplane, was sitting in Boston Harbor. And so instead of looking around in New York, they looked around in Boston. This is really the first of many things that doesn't break in Ruth Nichols' favor. But to Ruth's credit, she's not bitter. Or if she is bitter, she does a great job of hiding it. When Amelia returns to America in the summer of 1928, it's Ruth Nichols who's there to reach out to her and welcome her back home. Uh, they go to lunch in Rye, New York. They are now uh, two female aviators, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder. But it's really just the beginning of what would be a very complicated 
friendship and at times rivalry between the two women. So Ruth is born in the early 20th century on the Upper East Side of New York. She's the daughter of Erickson and Edith Nichols. Erickson Nichols, her father, descended from wealth on Staten Island and will, over the course of the next couple decades, amass a little bit of a fortune as a Wall Street trader. Ruth Nichols understands the expectations that her parents have for her. She is to grow up, marry, marry well, and marry young. When she does, all the newspapers are going to cover it and the society pages, and it will be a big deal. In the spring of 1919, as a graduation present, her father buys her a short airplane ride in Atlantic City. That kind of thing might sound crazy to us today, but this is post-World War I. The pilots have come home. There is a glut of pilots, a glut of planes. How do these pilots make money? Well, they start by, you know, barnstorming, you know, going across the country, carnivals, air rides, air shows, air rodeos, as they were called. Ruth goes to Atlantic City essentially for one of these. And she, she takes a short ride in an open cockpit JN4. It was a primitive biplane that was better known as a Jenny. She's very afraid to make this flight. She doesn't like riding on elevators. She doesn't like roller coasters. She doesn't like heights. But she doesn't want to reveal these fears to her father. So she smiles for the photograph and she, she climbs into the open cockpit with the pilot. And she was scared to death, especially when the pilot revealed that he didn't just plan to like, just fly her around in the sky. He was gonna do some flips and do some acrobatics and show off to his young teenaged passenger. And a surprising thing happens. By the time she reaches the ground, she would say that she fell as if in flying, her soul was freed from her earthly body. And it's really in that moment that everything changes for Ruth Nichols. Well, of course, that reminds me of Sophie, Sophie Blanchard. Blanchard. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, that, that the people who you least expect to enjoy this. Yeah absolutely love it. Well, this is making me feel like maybe I need to become a pilot. Maybe I'm missing out on something up there. <laughs> and I was going to say, maybe I maybe I would like it, but I know that I don't. But you've never flown. You've never been the pilot. You've only been a I passenger. I have, unfortunately. What do you mean? <laughs> uh, when I was in college, one of your friends set me up with her brother. Oh, yeah. On a blind oh, date. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. And he was a pilot. Yeah. And we went up in the air. Uh-huh. And he, he let you take over? He forced me to take over. He just took his hands off and forced me to pull the plane up and fly. And I was not ah. a fan of that experience. <laughs> and we did not go on another date. <laughs> so I've flown a plane and I didn't like it. So apparently I am unlike. Apparently you're earthbound. These women. Yeah. I'm just cowardly all mm -hmm. the way through. <laughs> <laughs> but such was not the case for Ruth Allen Nichols. Yeah. And she immediately fell in love. This was where she wanted to be all the time. But she's supposed to get married and be a society lady. Right. She refuses. And she goes off to Wellesley, the women's college, mm -hmm. against her father's will. But her parents really, really do not approve of this choice. And during her sophomore year, they 
they just absolutely insist that she give this up. And so she takes some time off and goes to Miami and stays in the family's home in Miami. All right, as you do. As you do. I assume that this is time meant to be spent finding a husband. Oh, okay. Instead, she finds a flight instructor. Yes. And secretly takes (laughs) pilot lessons. Wow. And by the time she graduates from Wellesley in 1924, she graduates with her diploma and a pilot's license. (laughs) I love that. She's a regular Phryne Fisher. Ah, yes, I think she is. And this is That's an excellent. This is right at the beginning of that era, the Roaring Twenties, when the youth are rejecting the values of the older generations, and you know, exactly. this seems like a classic. Her parents want her to do what's done, and this new gener- post post war generation says, "No, we are going to do the opposite of what you told us to do." Yeah, <laughs> tell me, she wore flapper dresses. I'm sure she did. Did she have short hair? I mean, she was a debutante. She did. That short bob? Yep. Cool. The short bob with the the flip out, so the very fashionable. Wow. Cool. I just love picturing the moment when her parents find out that rather than doing the society rounds, off in Miami, she's been secretly <laughs> learning to fly. <sighs> Thoroughly modern. So, although you might expect that her parents are furious about this, pretty quickly they seem to come around. They weren't initially huge fans. This wasn't the life they had imagined for Ruth. But something interesting happens. While Ruth's father didn't imagine it going this way for her, he either tacitly approves of it by turning the other way or actively encourages it as time goes on. And. That to me is pretty interesting. You know, Erickson Nichols, by all accounts, was not the kind of man that you disobeyed, whether you were a son or a daughter. So in my opinion, he probably could have stopped Ruth or he could have tried. And I don't think he did that. So while he didn't approve of what his daughter was doing, he did at least allow her to go down this path. As she's beginning to enter air races and do these really daring flights, she's getting a lot of newspaper coverage. Hmm. And that's what they're after anyway. Yeah. Right? And maybe if her wedding can't be in the newspaper. Right. Her daring do. This is the next best thing. Yeah. Exactly. And her father was very close friends with Teddy Roosevelt. Um, he had been in the Rough Riders. Oh, wow. So I have to assume that he understands the appeal of adventure yeah. and danger and an action oriented life yeah yeah even if he maybe didn't approve of it for a daughter at some core level he has to understand this is the 1920s he has to get on board yeah and he does cool um the papers call her the flying debutante (laughs) a socialite she's always referred to as a socialite but as keith o'brien points out that really doesn't ring true she didn't have a lot of money at the beginning she starts out yes she is a debutante she's a socialite her father is in wall street this is the 20s (laughs) so we know what's gonna happen yes so (laughs) after the crash when she really starts to come into her career her parents might be emotionally supportive Ah. but they cannot be financially supportive 
Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Every crate features an inspiring woman and her own unique story of why she's awesome, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on STEAM activities and more. And for our listeners, if you go to girlscancrate.com, C-R-A-T-E.com, and use the code HERNAME, all caps, you'll get 20% off your first month's crate on any subscription. It's designed for kids, but honestly, I think it's fun for adults. I have had many moments of awe based on these subscription box for children. (laughs) Plus, do you remember the magical joy that came when you got anything in the mail as a kid? Girls Can Crate brings that joy back and includes incredible stories of real-life sheroes to help the girls in your life learn that girls can be and do anything. Check them out now at girlscancrate.com. And when you order, make sure you use the coupon code HERNAME, all caps, so that they know we sent you. People would write her over the years and ask for money. Hmm. or ask her to sponsor them or ask her to invest in something. And she would write back and say, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't have as much money as you think I do. Sorry, I can't really help. When she sets her mind to making daring flights, she can't buy herself a plane. She has to get one just like anybody else does by hoping someone will let her borrow it or hoping a manufacturer will give her one. Now, Amelia Earhart is in a very different situation because she is marrying George Putnam, the man who arranged for the original center across the ocean and one of the richest men in New York. Wow. So she has all the funding she needs and she has a marketing machine behind her. Ah. For the, the National Women's Air Race in 1929, Amelia Earhart has her own plane. Ruth has to beg, borrow, and steal to get one. You know, she's writing letters, and sending telegrams throughout the summer of 1929, begging manufacturers to let her borrow a plane. She finally gets one, borrows one for this race. It's not a very good one. It does not go that well for Ruth. So we talked about 1928 and, and this missed opportunity. Uh, you know, when Amelia goes across the ocean and, and Ruth does not. In 1929, one year later, uh, Ruth Nichols will compete in the first national women's air race, an air derby as they called it, a transcontinental race from Santa Monica, California to Cleveland, Ohio. These kind of races were very common at the time. Men have been participating in them for a couple of years. 1929 is the first time women are allowed to compete and they've had to fight to, to get there. You know, in, in 1928, they begin lobbying air race officials saying that they want in. Ruth Nichols, Amelia Earhart, their friend and, and colleague Louise Thaden really leading the charge. And the male race organizers are intrigued. They do know there's advertising value in having women race. But they want the women to race on their terms. They want each woman to fly accompanied by a man. And they don't want them flying over the Rocky Mountains. 
So they can't leave from California. They suggest that they leave from Nebraska or Minnesota and fly on to Cleveland from there. Amelia Earhart, Louise Thaden, Ruth Nichols, they will have none of that. Uh, those three women in particular at the time were three of the four most famous female aviators in this country. And they vowed to boycott the air race if these absurd, clearly demeaning rules stay in place. Air race organizers know that's, that's not gonna look good for them. So they strike a compromise. Each woman can fly alone and they'll let them fly from California, but they will force them to stop in 15 different cities along the way, essentially puddle jumping across the continent. The women agree to this because they know this is the ultimatum offer. They all have to take the same route. Okay. Which kind of defeats a lot of the purpose of right. a race. Takes out all the strategy. Exactly. Okay. What the race organizers didn't realize is that by forcing everyone to stop at the same airfields, you guarantee a media presence in those places. Oh, yes. You've created an event. Yes, and the newspapers are completely full of this race for oh, nine days. cool. And instantly, all of these women aviators are famous. That's Everyone's awesome. Everyone's been following this race in a way that they really didn't for the shorter and less predictable men's races. I love that when something you think is going to be a bad thing turns out to be a good thing. These women become media darlings, and that's probably the phrase that they would have used. Yeah. In November 1930, she finally gets the break she needs. Um, in Cincinnati, Ohio, there was a, a radio broadcasting magnate by the name of Powell Crosley. Powell Crosley buys a Lockheed and modifies it, and, and Ruth Nichols has an opportunity to meet him in the fall of 1930. She essentially sells Powell Crosley on the idea of letting her have, use, borrow his, his Lockheed. And Pal Crosley agrees. He could imagine his name next to hers in, in the newspapers as she made daring flights. In quick succession now, now that Ruth Nichols finally has an opportunity, she is making fast and daring flights back and forth across the country, setting transcontinental uh, speed records, setting altitude records, you know, setting speed records over short distances, all in quick succession in, in late 1930, early 1931. A double record-breaking flight across the country ends as the plane taxis to a stop at Roosevelt Field. It's December 10th, 1930, and who steps out of the plane but one of America's leading women flyers, Ruth Nichols of Cincinnati. Ruth's mom is plenty proud of the daughter who just established coast-to-coast -coast records both ways and defeated Lindy's record time for a Los Angeles to New York flight, completing the trip in just 13 hours, 21 minutes. What a gal! What a plane! What a record! And this is the moment when she decides she's ready to start raising funds and trying to become the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. She's already broken a few of Lindbergh's records at this point, so why not set her sights on his biggest one? Here's what we've forgotten. Ruth Nichols 
has eclipsed Amelia Earhart. Undoubtedly, just objectively speaking, in the spring of 1931, Ruth Nichols is the most accomplished female aviator in this country. She has a list of records to her name, and now she is going to shock the world by flying solo across the Atlantic in this Lockheed that she's borrowed from Powell Crosley. Many prominent men refused to sponsor her, and one well-known man she approached about helping her manage the entire venture turns her down, even though he's already helped several aviators raise funds and, and prepare for big flights, saying that he doesn't want her blood on his hands. And she's livid. She knows that he would help her if she was a man. And she finally splutters out what is my favorite insult of all time. You're, you're mid-Victorian. <laughs> and it works. And he decides to help her. She knows that this flight is going to make her famous and finally prove her worth as an aviator, her ability as an aviator. She's got this plane that's ready. She's got book deals lined up and deals to sell footage of her flight to Hollywood. And she sets off in June 1931 to fly across the Atlantic. You know, anyone who's ever flown to Europe knows you don't fly straight out to sea from New York or Boston. You, you follow the curvature of the earth. It's the, it's the shortest route. It's, it was at the time called the Great Circle Route. And so she flies essentially up the coast of North America. And she's going to stop uh, to refuel and spend the night in New Brunswick, Canada, then jump from there to Newfoundland, spend another night, then go from Newfoundland across to Europe. Ruth takes off in Brooklyn. Military planes escort her up the Connecticut River Valley. And as she reaches New Brunswick, she realizes there's a problem. Instead of an expansive field, wide and open, it was more like a small bowl, a veritable trap, she thought, dropped into a valley in the middle of the hilly Canadian woods. With the sun in her eyes, Photographers waiting on the ground and darkness coming soon, Nichols decided to land. She came in fast at 80 miles an hour, half blinded by the sun. Nichols missed her mark, touching down not at the start of the runway, but in the middle. Realizing now that she wouldn't have enough time to stop the plane, Nichols hit the throttle, trying to take off again. And for a moment, it looked like she would succeed. With the Akita's engine shrieking and its tires squealing, Nichols lifted the plane off the runway just before the landing strip came to an end. She was in the air again, but still so low that the plane's propeller skimmed the ground. There was not enough time. There was not enough space. The Akita was heading for a rocky ledge, and Nichols braced herself for the inevitable. Ah! Huge crash. No. Totally destroys her airplane. She is 100% convinced that this airplane is going to explode because that's usually what happens. Yeah. So she's scrambling to get out of the plane as fast as she can. It doesn't explode and she manages to get out. Okay. Here's all of the media. She's just crashed before she even started. Oh, geez. 
and with a spirit that I absolutely love, she climbs out of the plane, stands in front of the media, and yells, Wire for another plane! <laughs> There's no other plane. No one's gonna give her a plane. <laughs> Even if there was, Ruth is seriously injured. You know, she has broken vertebrae in her back. She's very lucky not to be dead or paralyzed. It will take her months to recover. But in her in in her case, she didn't have a good choice. You know, right? Was I mean, she land could've... in the dark somewhere else, right? Or land now and crash. And you have twelve seconds as you come over to decide. Man, these airplanes are still mostly made out of wood. What? These are wood and linen airplanes. Really? I was stunned at how dangerous these planes are. Wow. I was picturing a big metal thing. They're experimenting with metal planes at this point, but they're all really still far too heavy to be able to fly well. And mm. and Ruth's plane, the Akita, is still a single-engine wood fuselage plane. She will recover. And she will find investors to help her rebuild this Lockheed. And she'll take to the sky just a few months later in the fall of 1931, wearing a steel corset, steel brace around her back. That's how badly she wants to keep flying. But the window of opportunity has closed and Amelia Earhart will fly solo across the ocean about 12 months after Ruth made her attempt. Did she land at that landing strip in Newfoundland, or...? She did not. She <laughs> had one of the world's most famous male aviators fly her plane for her up to New Brunswick and Newfoundland. And she started the flight out of the airport in Newfoundland without what? having to do the flight. Are you serious? I'm not throwing shade at Amelia Earhart. Right. But... It's so heartbreakingly unfair. Yeah. Ah. Uh. Of course, she deserves a, a lot of credit for that flight. It was extremely dangerous to fly across the ocean solo in a single engine airplane. Almost absurdly dangerous. But Amelia had advantages that Ruth Nichols didn't. It had to sting Ruth Nichols to know she had come so close to achieving her dreams and that she had fallen short. In my opinion, Ruth Nichols really never gets over it. She would suffer for the rest of her life from aches and pains from that crash. And yet within two and a half months, she's back in a plane yeah. and, and, and still planning to try to sell investors on an around-the-world flight. It, it, they were incredibly brave. You know, and that's, that's what bothers me about the reductive way we handle the history of women in aviation. In the time that Amelia Earhart flew, there were dozens of prominent female pilots racing planes, flying across the country, trying to set records. Each of them was brave. Each of them was bold. But in 1938, the war starts, the air races stop. 
any, uh, you know, we, all of these frivolous flying activities right. have to be directed to the war effort. Yep. She starts an organization in 1940 called Relief Wings. Relief Wings is entirely female pilots. Anything that, that the Air Force might have been doing, they can now do. Cool. And this is officially the civilian arm of the Air Force. And so by the end of the war, she has earned her lieutenant colonel ranking in the Civil Air Patrol. Wow, that's awesome. Ruth Nichols struggled after the time of the air races ended. The golden age of, of flying, as it's known, and certainly the peak of the air races was from like 1928 to 1938. Hmm. A lot of female aviators in particular struggled with entrenched discrimination and sexism, as accomplished and experienced a pilot as Ruth Nichols was. She could not get hired at any airline at all. At times, the airlines just told her point blank, we can't hire you, you're a woman. And so she ends up taking work, you know, working in the, essentially the PR office of a hospital in White Plains. She's the world record holder in everything, and no one will hire her. She can't even get a job as a flight instructor. Ah. Oh. And she's miserable. She is utterly miserable. And based on her diaries, she is struggling with both physical and emotional pain. Her friend and, and longtime rival, Amelia Earhart, of course, is gone. She is in constant contact with another one of their friends and fellow flyers from this time. It's Louise Thaden. And Louise does what she can to help her friend. You know, at one point, you know, writes Ruth Nichols a letter and, and essentially says, and I'm paraphrasing here, remember how strong you are. Remember that you wanted to fly around the world. Wear that as an armor against whatever you're fighting now. It's not enough. In 1960s, Family cannot reach Ruth Nichols at her apartment in New York City. And they find her dead in her apartment. She overdosed on, on the painkiller she was taking at the time. It's, it's a sad end, of course, to, to a great and promising life. It, it was heartbreaking for me you know, to know how close Ruth came to achieving her dreams, how she watched it all slip away. I think that's something that a lot of people understand. And Ruth had it writ large. She was almost the first woman to fly solo across the ocean. Imagine the implications of that. Were it not for bad luck, a poor landing, would we know the name Amelia Earhart today? So Ruth Nichols was buried in Woodlawn Cemetery in New York. Okay. Um, that's also where Adelaide Herman is buried from one of our previous oh. episodes. And where basically everyone famous from New York in the 20s or the 30s is buried. Like many prominent cemeteries, they have a map with right. all of the famous people. Yeah. Just like in our episode on Claudia Jones. And you can go and see all the famous people's graves. Many of these women were cremated. It seemed to fit them. You know, they wanted to be cremated and scattered from a plane in the sky. And so they are in the wind, really. But Ruth was buried. 
It's a beautiful, sprawling cemetery, massive. So I took a train up there on the morning that my book came out. And I went and I checked in at the office because you have to check in when you go to the cemetery. And I explained that I was here to visit the grave of Ruth Nichols. They got out a map to help me find it. On this map, there are little icons for all the famous and important people that are buried there. Ruth Nichols does not have an icon. She is not on the map. And so using the map and the staffer and also an app and that I downloaded onto my phone, we triangulated where she was and off I went, you know, walking about a mile you know, through, the, through the cemetery. And finally, I did find her grave. Woodlawn Cemetery is filled with massive mausoleums. Some of them are even styled at like Egyptian crypts. And Ruth Nichols wasn't like that at all. It's just a simple tombstone. Like, like one day you or I might be buried under. It has her name, it has the date of birth and her date of death. And then at the bottom, sort of obscured in the ivy, there were three words. It said, beloved by all. And it, and it just stopped me because she was beloved by all. All of these early female aviators were beloved by all. And, and I do hope, I do hope they will be again because they risked everything, sacrificed so much. It's easy to, to think about all these things that Ruth Nichols came so close to achieving. And, and to find her story heartbreaking. I don't think that's the takeaway. She was a brave, bold woman who defied her family's expectations and defied the expectations of the time to live the life that she wanted. I think that's an inspiring story. I find it to be an inspiring story myself. Huge thanks to Keith O'Brien, as well as to Taryn Roder, and to Cassandra McNeil and Highbridge Audio for generously allowing us to use clips from the Fly Girls audiobook. And thanks to our voiceover actor, Matthew Mickle. Thanks also to Pamela Toller for sponsoring this episode on Patreon. If you'd like to support more episodes of What's Your Name, visit our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com and click donate. There are rewards for donations as low as a dollar a month, and you can access all kinds of great prizes like our cross-stitch patterns, our trading cards, and even get a thank you in a future episode. Thanks so much to all of our patrons. We truly couldn't do it without you. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. If you'd like to learn more about Ruth Nichols and see amazing photos of pioneering women pilots in the early days of aviation, as well as links to Keith O'Brien's wonderful book and audiobook, check out our website at whatsonamepodcast.com. Music for this episode was provided by Daniel Henderson and his big band, Amanda Setlick-Wilson, The Melody Weavers, Jeremy Didis, Maria Jeffers, and the students of the College Conservatory of Music at the University of Cincinnati, Jeff Kuno, and the New Hot Five. 
Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. Thank you, thank you.